We today are continuing in our series called Blood, Sweat, and Tears as we're looking at the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 2. And today our format's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to have Pastor Matt and Pastor Rick come out. And we're going to uh, kind of show a little bit about what it would look like for the three of us to do a sermon, three, uh, three preachers doing one sermon all at once. Yeah, here we go. Uh, so uh, we're actually going to do that. We're going to look at Nehemiah 2. And uh, if, if you'd like to study more in depth uh, the book of Nehemiah, we are hosting a roundtable discussion tonight here on campus out in the front there at 4 o'clock. Uh, in the back of the seat in front of you, in the card holder in front of you, there is a ministry guide that looks like this. And inside of that ministry guide, you can find more information on our roundtables. It's under the heading uh, of classes and studies. And please be sure to register for that so we know how much to set up for. You can register today on your phone or when you get home later. And these roundtable discussions are opportunities for us to engage in deeper dialogue, discussion, and study about different uh, uh, topics and different conversations. And today, we'll be looking at some of the crazy things in the book of Nehemiah. But before uh, we do that, we're going to do the sermon this morning. And before we do the sermon, I want to catch you guys up to where we're at in the story of Nehemiah. You can take a look at this video, and that'll get us caught up to speed. The book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah finds out through a messenger that his homeland is in ruins. Huh? Hundreds of years earlier, the Babylonians destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the temple and walls that protected the city and dragged the people away into captivity. Years went by with the Babylonians in charge until a powerful king in Persia named Cyrus attacked and defeated the Babylonians. As a result, Cyrus allowed the people of Israel to go back and rebuild their temple. Unfortunately, the Israelites once again turned their back and sinned against God. Meanwhile, King Cyrus dies and a new king is put into power. This new king boldly proclaims that there will never be a wall built around the city of Jerusalem again. It appears the Israelites have missed their window of opportunity. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to this king. Cupbearer meaning prime minister, bodyguard, and second in command. Nehemiah hears of his people's plight and his heart breaks. So he takes a risk and asks the king if he can go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The hand of God was upon Nehemiah, so the king granted his request. And after five months, Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. When he gets there, he surveys the situation for three days and then makes a speech to the people of Jerusalem. So we should be caught up a little bit. Uh, I hope that that was helpful to you to give you a sense of the scale and scope of the story of Nehemiah. Uh, one of the things we're looking at is through this series called Blood, Sweat, and Tears is we're looking at how do we respond when we feel like God's calling us to something. There's so many needs out in the world today, so many different things that we could be involved in, and how do we as, as people, as individuals, and as a community discern what the right thing to do is, what God's calling us to do. And, and Nehemiah 2 is going to be a help to us today. Uh, and to help us engage in, in this study is uh, Pastor Matt Hawkins. Yes, I'm here. And Pastor, <laughs> Pastor Rick Eford. There you go. <laughs> and Pastor Caleb Campbell. Yeah, <laughs> you got one. I paid him. <laughs> Caleb, I wanna, they clap hey, for him and not I want to know which one of us is blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see by the end of this, okay, I think. Yeah. 
when we look to the book of Nehemiah, and I would encourage you, if you guys have your Bibles, to turn uh, to Nehemiah chapter 2. If you're not sure where Nehemiah is, you can look at the table of contents. If you're using a digital device this morning, uh, we're using the English Standard Version. And if you'd like a print copy of a Bible, there are some available under the, uh, the giant 40s. Um, there's tables back there with some Bibles. Feel free to get up and grab one of those. Uh, and Nehemiah 2 shows us something. It shows us, as we respond to God's... Um, uh, what we think maybe is God's calling in our life, uh, we're going to see Nehemiah shows us three things. Number one, that, that in response to that, it, it is wise and good for each one of us to, number one, know our calling, to, to know what God is calling us to. Uh, two, to understand the need, the thing that he's calling us to do or to engage with. What are the actual needs he's calling us to? And three, to count on a uh, opposition, to count on opposition. Number one, to know our calling. Number two, to understand the need. And number three, uh, to count on opposition. And uh, I'm going to kick this off and just ask Pastor Rick, what are some of the things that you notice here in the first few verses of, of Nehemiah 2? Thanks, Caleb. You know, there's a ton of stuff in this book. I mean, so many principles on leadership and on understanding how we live before Christ today. But one of the things that stood out to me most is from the get-go, in order to understand what God's call is on our life, we better be people of prayer. Prayer was central. It was front and center in Nehemiah's life. Uh, to go back even before we start in chapter 2 to chapter 1, uh, there's news that comes to Nehemiah, and that is the city of his homeland, Jerusalem, is torn down. The walls are broken down. The city is in disrepair. And, and the news of that put him in a funk, I mean, big time. And so he, he mourned and he wept and he fasted and he prayed. And that's the end of chapter 1. Now, when he got the news, it was in the month of Chislev, which in the Hebrew calendar equates to our calendar of November to December. We pick this up in chapter 2 in the month of Nisan. Nissan basically is not just a car, we know that, but in the Hebrew calendar, it's a month that equates to our season of March and April, basically, which we're coming into now. If you do the math, for four months, he had been praying about this need. He was concerned it was something that was a legitimate need. Somebody had to do something. He was passionate about it, and yet the question is, what was God asking him to do about it? And as Caleb mentioned a few minutes ago, that's one of the key things. We all have so many needs before us. How do we determine what's of God and what's not? And so he's petitioning the God of heaven before he speaks to the king. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was set before him, he was the cupbearer to the king. He did this, but the king notices something, and that is that his countenance has fallen. He looks depressed. He looks down. Now, you just didn't do that in the face of a king like Artaxerxes. Everybody would need to be up. They need to be positive. They need to be high five, and everything's the greatest in the world if you're before the king. He's the second in charge, the second command, one of the trusted advisors to the king as the cupbearer. The king sees his countenance and says, Why are you so downcast? What's the problem? And here's what he comes back and he says, Let the king live forever. I love the respectfulness that he gives to this foreign king, but he consistently is respectful to the man who's in authority, even though he may or may not agree with some of his policies and his actions. Let the king live forever. He says, may if it pleases the king do this. 
And so he said, why shouldn't my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, and this is in verse 4 if you're following, what are you requesting? And before he speaks to the king, he speaks to God again, and he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He was asking for wisdom as to how to respond, and he makes two big asks of the king. First, he asked time off, and again, he was a critical component to the king's cabinet. He's asking for a period of time off to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the wall. There are the people who were going to be working on the city. That was his task. That was what he was going to be doing. And secondly, he asked the king another thing that was big, and that is, will you write letters for me? Use your authority, your influence to get building materials for this project. Do you get the program as far as how big of an ask this is on both accounts? And yet he believed God wanted him to do it, so he stepped out courageously and did just that. And so the king then comes back and and grants his request. We see in verse 8 then, and the king granted for me what I ask, for the good hand of God was upon me. This was not because of his strategic nature. It was not because of his winsome personality. It was because the good hand of God was upon me. And all of us face, like Nehemiah, so many different times in which there's more needs than we can meet or the needs seem so overwhelming, we can't possibly do it. How can I handle this? How can I meet this? What, what God do you want me to do? I'm passionate about this, but how can I do this? And so it's critical to pray, as Nehemiah did to ask for God's direction and his guidance. Uh, One of my former teachers in graduate school used to say this, a need does not always constitute a call for you to meet that need. It may be a legitimate need, but how do I know this is what God wants me to do? How do you know what God wants you to do? Uh, Another put it this way, it's better instead of trying to do a great work for God, it's more important to join God in what he's doing. Do you see how that paradigm shifts? And that is so true here in Nehemiah saying, God, I want to join you in what you're doing. I just need to know what it is. So he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And God gave him clarity as to what he should ask and what he should do. And it's important for us to do that because sometimes we're not just saying yes to good things. We have to say no to some good things in order to say yes to that which is better. Uh, Another friend of mine put it this way. I don't know if it was original with him or he heard it somewhere else, but I love it. Sometimes good is sometimes best's worst enemy. I'm going to say that again. Good is sometimes best's worst enemy. How do we know that apart from we know the mind of God? So that's where prayer comes in and we reflect on that. Because I know over the years that, that I've been here, there have been a lot of times when God has has given us direction, and sometimes we've said yes, sometimes we've said no. <clears throat> a couple of examples that we talked about the other day. Um, a little over 25 years ago, there were two women in specific in this church, Roberta Meyer and Lynn Labby, who came to me, to the leaders, and said, we really believe that God wants us to start a preschool here at Desert Springs. And we prayed, and we sought God's will, and evaluated the resources, all that type of stuff, and said, yes, we believe this is what God wants us to do. And it has turned into one of the strongest preschools anywhere around. Any of you that had the opportunity to be under the teaching, it's great. But because it's so good, almost every year, parents would come to me and say, this has been such a wonderful experience. This is so good. 
don't you think we should start a Christian school? Like first through sixth, then Christian junior high, then Christian high school. Mm. And as leaders, we again sought God and came back with no. Preschool is what God's called us to do. School is not what he has given us as a charter to do. You think that was understood by everybody? No. You think it was appreciated? No. <laughs> but we believe this was what God was calling us to do. Now, another thing that we just had a few weeks ago is that a little over 15 years ago, there was a small group of people that came to me and some of the other leaders and said, you know, there's such a need in our community for a Christ-centered recovery ministry. What do you think about us starting Celebrate Recovery Ministry? It was going strong at Saddleback over in California, and what about having one here? And we prayed as leaders, we talked to those people that God raised up as leaders and decided, yes, this is what God wants us to do. We started that and just a few weeks ago, was it three or four weeks ago, we celebrated 15 years of effective consecutive service of Celebrate Recovery in this ministry. Yeah, absolutely. And if I'm not mistaken, Caleb, I think that this is the oldest consecutive ministry of Celebrate Recovery in the state of Arizona. That's what I'm told. Yeah. And so anyway, it's, it's marvelous to see what God has done. And I was talking with one of the leaders of Celebrate Recovery, present leaders in the office just the other day, and, and he said, did you, and we're just affirming the good work that's there, and he said, did you ever envision or even dream that this could be the case? And I said, actually, yes, I did. It didn't start with me. It started with some other people, but our leadership locked into and said, yes, we think God is in this, and we want to join him with that. And the results are marvelous just to see how he's been doing that over this time. <clears throat> now, that's not just organizational. I got to tell you, for me personally, um, a little over 30 years ago, I was asked to leave a ministry that I was involved in, which I felt like was fruitful and which I loved the people in that ministry very much to come to Desert Springs Bible Church and become the senior pastor here. And my initial response was no. No, thank you. It was a great ministry, nothing against the ministry. I, I loved what I knew of it and just the heart of the people that were here, but my answer was no. And they asked me this. They said, well, would you pray about it? And I said, yeah, but here's three or four other guys. You need to contact them. <laughs> they would do a great job here. But will you pray about it? Yes, I will pray. And God changed my heart. He changed it not from a no to yes, I want to do that. I believe that's what God's doing. And I want to be a part of it. I want to use the gifts and abilities he's given to me. And he changed the direction of my life. But it wouldn't have happened apart from prayer. And so that's critical for all of us to understand just uh, how he's at work. I've seen it in my life. I bet you have in yours as well. You know, Matt, you're like the new kid on the block, buddy. Okay? <laughs> I don't know if you're blood, sweat, or tears, but you're the new kid on the block. I'm blood. There I'm you blood. go. Okay. So anyway, uh, I'm going to let that go. All right. How did you determine whether this is the place that God wanted you to be? Oh, man. That's a great question. Awesome question for blood. Um, <laughs> I, I would like to think that it had something to do with these great minds that are on the stage particularly this one, but, but in reality, I know that it was Jesus 
um, in the background orchestrating um, what we see today. It was nobody but Jesus. Well, you know, I hear you and I've heard other people talk about it. Well, I heard from Jesus. Jesus mm -hmm. told me. And to be honest, there's sometimes I thought Jesus was speaking to me with just bad pizza from the <laughs> night before. How do you even determine that? Well, I know there is a mystical component to the Spirit of God's leading. Sure. I believe that firmly and fully. I also know and have respected in you from the get-go in the, the evaluation process and in the question and answer and interaction with leadership and other types of things. I've watched you do that. And even since you've been here, I've watched you do the same thing. A lot of the younger pastors that I work with, younger leaders, will come into a place and they, they come in, yes, I've got the plan. You need to do this. We need to do that. I'm, 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 I'm. They're hitting the ground. I want to show you how it's done. Right. Okay, you've taken a different approach. You've taken some time to sit back and check out what's happening and talk to leaders and evaluate some of the strengths and yep. perhaps deficiencies and what, what we need to do. I so respect that it shows a great deal of maturity on your part. Well, I, I appreciate the compliment, yeah. Rick. It makes me feel You're better. welcome, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to be honest, I, I would love to um, act like I've always been that way, but um, while I don't have the gray hair, this isn't, this isn't my first rodeo. And, um, you don't have any hair. I don't have. <laughs> Easy, buddy. You're on your way. You're on your way. <laughs> Burn. Okay, we got to get back. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I should say that, you know, in an earlier ministry, I did have that mindset of I'm just going to go in and push my agenda, push my perspective and everybody will follow along, and that was an epic fail. And so, mm -hmm. um, by God's grace, and by a good old-fashioned whooping in previous times, um, I've really seen how God has uh, impressed upon me to assess the need, to, to first of all actually see where the challenges are, where the opportunities are, and then build um, around that. So, in the text, we see something similar from, ne from Nehemiah, um, in chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. I'm going to read it. If you have your Bibles, feel free to um, follow along, and it'll be on the screens as well. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. The big question is, um, how do we understand um, a need? So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, that's my favorite gate, um, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Man, I wish I could cover all of that, but 
this text, this portion, really gives us some insight as to how Nehemiah was able to answer two big questions. Why did Nehemiah care, first of all, about assessing this need? And then the, the other thing is, how did he actually assess need? How did he actually evaluate or take inventory um, of the need? And out of a million different perspectives, um, I settled upon two. Um, the, the big thing that I see here in this text is that we should remember and we should respond. In order to actually evaluate or assess a need, first of all, we have to remember. And one of the things, if I stay in the text here, Nehemiah um, was tethered throughout this entire time um, because you have, you know, thousands of years of perspective on this text, you can see through hindsight how, how he was always pointing back to, even in his recount, he was always pointing back to this promise that God had on his people. Um, and just practically speaking, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, it is impossible for you to be able to look at a need if it's disconnected from a strong purpose or a strong why. You're just wasting your time if, if you don't have a framework or a context in which you're looking at what the problem is. And so Nehemiah, you can see in, in chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, um, if I had to summarize that, he's, he's using these two verses, these, this prayer to God to almost remind God, as if God doesn't know, telling God of his promise, the 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 promise of how God would make his name great through the children of Israel or through the Jewish nation or through um, these Israelites. And then the other part of the promise is that um, the, the name of God will be made great, that, that, that the people of God would, would be the ones that would make him their God and he would make them his people. And there's this level of ownership all throughout the Old Testament of, of how this, this body of people, this group of people, this nation belongs to God and has been sanctified, has been set apart for God's use. And there's this back and forth of the people kind of being hard-headed a little bit and, and not really wanting to submit to God. And so I, I love the fact how Nehemiah doesn't get tunnel vision when he's about to assess need. He, he doesn't get lost in all the details of the day, but he's able to connect the need to a greater purpose. And practically in 2017, it's vital if you are a Jesus follower to make sure that everything you're doing is connected to something greater than yourself. The number one purpose, your big why, and we say this all the time, is to give glory to God for the good of others, to to, to seek God, to, to live your life for his glory and the good of others. That's my why. That's why I do what I do. And out of that will help me, will drive me to really look at need in this proper context. Not only do we see purpose in his remembering, but also he remembers the promise that God has um, been speaking throughout history. Um, you, you can see Nehemiah as, as a little boy um, in his hometown um, and, and just, or, or at, at least around his people and them giving him the perspective of, of the Torah, giving, giving him the perspective of what it means to follow God. And 
I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but sometimes we look at scripture or we look at experiences outside of this greater narrative. Um, I told this story, I tell this story all the time of how when I was a kid in Sunday school, I used to think that I was the star of, of every Bible story, right? And so, you know, uh, if it was David and Goliath, of course, I am David. Okay, I got two people over here. If it's David and Goliath, I am David. Thank you guys for telling me that. I, I'm David in the story. I used to always think I was the star of the story. If Jonah throws himself off the boat and, and gets swallowed up by a fish, then I'm Jonah throwing myself off the boat and I get back on track and I preach this great sermon. That's what I used to think when I was a kid. And that was the wrong, it's cute, but that's the wrong reading of the text. The Bible isn't to show how awesome you are and how cool your business is going to go. The Bible isn't, is, is, isn't written, God breathed. It isn't God produced so, so you can get good, get good grades or so you can be successful and be all you can be. Actually, the Bible is to show how awesome Jesus is and what God has done. And in light of that, how he's helped these miserable people, also known as Matthew Hawkins. You see, so, so, so even here in Nehemiah, we see him pushing the attention back on God, back on not only this great purpose, but this awesome promise that this story, even this awesome story, is tethered to this greater story of redemption and how God's love has rescued us from our horrible place and has given us an opportunity to have a pretty cool life, not so we can say we're cool, but so we can give him glory, so we can lift him up. And, and then the other thing we see after um, he, he positions himself, chapter one, early chapter two, to remember, he responds. If you're going to meet a need, if you're gonna really assess a need in your life right now, whether it's your marriage, whether you're, you're parenting or, or you're dating or, or whatever the context is, you're a super grandma or a super grandpa, you know, what, whatever you're doing right now in your life, it's vital that you actually do something. I know that's profound. Mic drop. Big deal, right? <laughs> you know, you got to, you know, we, we, we can, especially Jesus followers, we can get so caught up on scripture and theology and, and talking, but we never actually get boots on the ground. And I love how Nehemiah responds to this need by literally taking it upon himself to travel there, to spend three nights actually in the midst of the ruins to see it with his own eyes, to hear the sounds with his own ears, not to hide behind data or statistics or someone else's report, but to actually be present. If you're trying to understand where you can be useful, whatever the context is, if you're trying to wrap your mind around where the need is, first of all, you actually have to get to the place of the problem. I appreciate that about Nehemiah. It, it says, that's the text that I read. He walked around my favorite gate, Dung Gate, and a bunch of other places to see with his own eyes. And, and that gives this, this great thing that Pastor Caleb said last week. It gives us this emotional ownership. The reason why we don't get boots on the ground all the time or we don't feel like dealing with this particular issue is because we emotionally don't want to be invested. 
We don't want to actually be involved with all those highs and lows. And so we hide behind a computer screen or we, we say, no, 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 I don't feel like talking about that right now. So we can avoid actually feeling the weight of the issue. And then not only is he physically there, but the, the cool thing as Pastor Caleb and I and Pastor Rick, we were talking about this, Pastor Caleb raised this and I'm just stealing it from him. He, he actually had people come along with him. It, it wasn't this idle-minded, I'm superhero, I'm gonna do all this surveying on my own. We have a lot of one woman, one man shows represented here. Yeah, I got, got an amen over there. Yeah, and, 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 I, and if you talk to my wife, she would say the same thing about me. And, and, and all throughout scripture, I love how he didn't bring the entourage because he had a huge army and everything traveling with him to make sure he was safe. But he did at least have some smaller remnant of a community with him to help survey. The, the cool thing is he didn't just leave them without hearing um, what God had said to him. Um, he, he, he actually invited them into what God had already been up to towards the end of their evening. You see um, in the text, I believe it's verse 18, he reminds them that God's hand has been upon him the entire time, that God's been orchestrating this thing. And so he connects the ruins with, with redemption, that God's been up to this great story. And I, I know what you're thinking, Nehemiah couldn't see all the way to the cross and Jesus being crucified and saving everyone, but, but he, could, he could at least see hints to the fact that God wanted to redeem his people. Um, the, the question that, that still raises um, and, and still kind of uh, is, is looming over our heads here is, what, what are we gonna do about this uh, brokenness? How do we respond to this broken situation? I think that's important, Matt, that we, we not just give uh, lip service to a particular need or a Facebook post to a particular need, but we actually get our hands dirty and get involved in the need, regardless of where that need is. And uh, one of the things that struck me, I don't know if you guys saw this uh, in the text, but you notice uh, what time of day was it? What, he, he went at night to survey the city. Why did he go at night? Uh, because... Haters, yeah, opposition. Oppo- haters. Haters. Opposition. Yeah. So now I don't feel good. <laughs> um, so first, number one, you're telling me, Rick was telling me just a minute ago that God will sometimes call us, oftentimes will call us to do certain things. It's important for us to understand what that calling is. You guys, do you guys hear that? You guys hear that? And then Matt said, you know, one of the great things to do is once we're, you know, pretty confident that that's the call, is to get boots on the ground and go and assess the need to understand the need. So number one, to know our calling, and then secondly, to understand our needs. You guys hear him say that? And so, but now what you're telling me is that there's going to be some haters. 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 And this is where uh, I think, um, usually for me, I get real reticent to get involved with God's calling in my life. Uh, let me read it here. This is Nehemiah 2, 17 through 19. So check this out. Up until this point in time, Nehemiah has had pretty good success. He went to the king. It was a pagan king, enemy king. And the king, was, he was like, hey, give me some money. And the king was like, cool. And he's like, give me like years of vacation. <laughs> I mean, imagine if you went to your boss and was like, hey, my church is doing a project. I need 10 years off and a uh, million dollars. How's that going to go down, right? So, so the Lord is with him. He, he, the king says yes, lets him go. It's awesome. 
Uh, things are going pretty good. He shows up, he gets boots on the ground, he assesses the need. Things are going pretty swimmingly for Nehemiah. And then in verse 17, uh, we pick this up. He says, he's given this great speech. He says, and I said to them, you see the trouble uh, we are now in, how Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that the hand of my God uh, that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. It's like a Disney movie, man. I mean, everything is going awesome. Everyone's like, we're going to do this project, you know, rah, rah, rah. And then verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem uh, the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now notice what's the, what, the, what the accusation is. Remember, uh, Pastor Rick was saying how Nehemiah went to great lengths to make sure he didn't disrespect the king. Did you guys catch that? I mean, this is a pagan enemy king, and Nehemiah is, number one, recognizing God's call in his life. But two, even though he recognizes God's call in his life, he still shows respect and propriety. He still honors the king. He says, let the king live forever. And here now, these haters are coming in, saying, we don't like the work you're doing. And they begin to point at and accuse him at what point? The very point that he was trying to uphold integrity, that he was trying to uphold Righteousness. I mean, it's almost like, man, you went above and beyond, and that's the thing that I'm going to attack. And one of the things that we must recognize is that when God calls us to something and we, we, we begin the good work of doing, whatever it is that God's calling us to do is that opposition is coming at you. Okay? Opposition is, it's not, it's not if, it's when. Mm. And opposition does not contradict God's call in your life. In fact, I would argue that the majority of the time, God's uh, opposition affirms God's calling in your life. It doesn't contradict it, it affirms it. In fact, I would go one step further and say, if you believe that you are walking in God's call for your life, which is always sacrificial, by the way, and you are not experiencing any opposition, you may have misunderstood what God's call is in your life. Because as I see it all throughout the scriptures and in just human life, every time that we take a step of faith, every time we take right. a step out to do the right thing, opposition is coming at you. Mm -hmm. And there's three different types of opposition, and we're just going to peel right through these. Rick, uh, what's one of the types? You did 30 years as our lead pastor at Desert Springs. I think there might have been a couple of times yeah, just a few. That you experienced opposition. I'm pretty sure I was the source of some of that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's true too. <laughs> but I'm glad you repented. So take it away. <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten about that one, but that would be a good discussion a for another one. time. Yeah. <laughs> wow. How long do you have? I, let's, let's, let's do that one. <laughs> <laughs> Later, Matt. Okay, I'll fly. We'll do that over Shut lunch. Up, you want to stay for lunch today? Okay. Um, Wow. There have been times, honestly, where people have either taken exception for something we we're seeking to do in ministry, uh, or they just didn't agree with it, and they would launch a campaign. Sometimes there was one deal we were doing. I won't tell you what it was, but this one guy took exception with it, and, and this was way before the days of Facebook, so he decided to use email. I came in on a Monday morning. My email box, my inbox was jammed with all of the hate. hate. 
And uh, same guy picketed us on the corner out here with some placards that said some untrue and very unkind things to say about this ministry. About a ministry, by the way, that several students came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of. He didn't agree with it. He didn't see it. And he was trying to persuade others against this. Uh, there's now Facebook, different times. Everybody can be a poet and a hater from the snipe from the bushes, so to speak. And, you know, those types of things are hard. We've had other ministries here. We've had people, in this case, other Christians that were picketing right out here against another Christian ministry because they didn't agree with the way it was being done. That is so sad. You know, when you see that, but you can expect it, it happens. Uh, sometimes it, it's people who have either been here, maybe we've, maybe we've not met their expectations or hurt someone. We drop the ball. Sometimes we experience opposition because of things we did wrong. And sometimes it's because we're doing things right and God wants us to go there, but other people aren't willing to go with us. But I've had people that have been left and gone to other churches and then the word comes back to me that they're talking about desert springs, referring to it as deserted springs, or all everybody's leaving, or that's going to be the death of this church. Sometimes it's when a newer church would be starting, and the newest and greatest thing, oh, people are going to flock out of desert springs and go to that church. And, you know, we're still here, right? <laughs> and even when people say that, they don't get it. We have been sought to be a blessing to these other churches. We have let other churches use our facility. We have invested in other churches. We love other churches. We're not only a game in town, and we see that as a blessing. How can we help the greater body of Christ? So, you know, it's, I could go on, but I'm going to let it sit at that. It's just that stuff where it hurts, it comes from outside of the leader, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's even within the body of Christ. And, you know, one of the things, just real quickly, and this is rational, it's reasonable. Uh, when we did the, um, we did a three-year capital expansion campaign or ministry expansion and involved a lot of finances. And so there was great sacrifice on the part of this body. And, and before the next step, we decided as leaders that it was more strategic for us to pay off our existing debt before we did anything else. Now, characteristically, you don't want to start a capital campaign like that above and beyond when you've just finished one and reasonably, there were some people that thought, no, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that, it's gonna fail, it's not gonna work. It's, yeah. When we started the punch out debt, now when we started, Caleb, we were at what, $706,000 worth of indebtedness on our property? Mm -hmm. And what is it today? It's under 195. dollars It's under $195,000 today. <laughs> you know, understand and this is for an, any leader, any person is going to experience people that say it can't work, it won't be done. The main thing we need to hear from God. Mm. And we need to go the direction he calls us to go, mm -hmm. regardless of whether other people follow or not. Yep. And thank God, a lot of you have shared that vision. A lot of you have participated in this. And we believe by the end of this year, we have no debt whatsoever. And that's an awesome thank you, Jesus. I'll shut up, you go ahead. So there's external to the leader, there's, there's pain that comes external to the leader, opposition that comes. Matt, what about internal, inside the leader, or inside the servant? Are, are, are you saying that I'm crazy? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, years ago, many years ago, since we're doing that, many years ago, um, when I was a kid, I, believe it or not, I was very uncomfortable 
very uncomfortable around people. And we had this massive park in the back of our house. And so my brother is super athletic. They used to go play sports and I would try to tag along, but I never wanted to be around um, the older folks because the, the big guys, because I felt like I would be teased or I would feel uncomfortable. So ton of insecurity as a kid, as a kid, yeah. So you, you guys know this, don't you, that any leader worth their salt feels self-doubt almost rampantly in their life. Uh, anytime that you step out in faith to do what God calls you to do, uh, immediately one of the types of opposition you get, the external opposition I think is actually the easiest one to deal with. It's the internal opposition, the self-doubt, the the, the frustration, the, state, the thought process of, am I even doing this right? Is this even working? Does God even want me to do this? I mean, that, that can become overwhelming. And one of the things that feeds into that is something that you actually see in the text a little bit later on, and that's when the opposition comes, not necessarily from outsiders or not necessarily even from, from within, but just from the people on your team. Mm. And one of the things that, that's clear to me is that God rarely calls us to serve apart from a team. So whether it's your family or a relationship that you're in, whether it's a church family, whether it's a business, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's classmates, God rarely calls us to engage in his mission, his call for our life on our own. He, he almost always puts us together with others to do that as a team. And one of the types of opposition that will oftentimes come in and it's unexpected is what the, the people that you're serving alongside and you're in lockstep and you're marching forward together, when they begin to believe the skeptic, when they, believe, when they begin to believe uh, the statements of the sandblots of the world, the, the, the criticizers, the haters, those who are throwing shade, and they begin to see you through that lens, that is a source of opposition that's very difficult to deal with. Uh, in fact, for many of us, it can become incapacitating because these are people that we love. You know, when people that we hate criticize us, that's easy. You just hate them back, right? I mean, that's the natural thing. And so, and of course, that's what makes Jesus call to love our enemies and pray for those who per persecute us difficult. We must rely on him. But, but again, we can filter it through that lens. It's when the opposition comes from those who, who we count as closest to us uh, can be difficult. And so now at this point in time of the sermon, uh, Rick, we're sad. We're contemplative. We're wondering, how do we even do this? Would you bring it home using your 30-plus years of sage experience? Help us. Give us, the, give us the peace and the power to do this. It's like, about, fix me, Dad. In like the last <laughs> minute, if you would, please. Well, I think the best way to answer that, and the only real hope in all of this, is the very last verse of chapter 2. Then I replied to them, Nehemiah said, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and we will build. I love that. This is not uh, Nehemiah's ministry. It's not the leadership of Desert Springs. It's not even the people of Desert Springs here. Ultimately, these ministries are whose ministry? They're God's God. ministries. God. As long as we stay focused on him, keep our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter mm -hmm. of our faith, we can run with endurance the race he's put before us. Because yeah. it was Jesus that said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Mm -hmm. And that's what we as Christ followers want to lock into. Yeah. And it is so good to be a part of what God's doing. In the greater picture, it's so good to be a part of what God's doing here at Desert Springs. And I think the best is yet to come. Mm. Let's arise and build. Yeah. Good. Would you guys give it up for these great guys?
Thanks. Let me pray for you all real quick. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for how you provide for us, for your word and for Nehemiah and how we see you at work through your people, how you're calling us now to pick up the mantle of servant leadership, to bless one another, this community, and those around the world. Give us wisdom and vision to see how it is that you're calling us to do that. Give us the strength to assess the needs that you place before us. And Lord, give us the courage to be able to do that even in the face of opposition. We cling to you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.